Hello everyone and welcome to the Motor City Hoops podcast, an entertaining fresh take on the three-time NBA champs, the Detroit Pistons. Hey Hoopheads, we appreciate you listening to this episode of Motor City Hoops. Be sure to check out these other NBA pods on the Hoopheads podcast network, including Cavaliers Central, Knuck If You Buck, 305 Culture, Spanning the Spurs, Daily Thunder, X's and O's NBA Breakdown, LA Hoops, The Wizards Hoops Analyst, At The Buzzer, and Lakers Fast Break, plus our coaching-focused podcasts, Thrive with Trevor Huffman, Beyond the Ball, the CoachMaze.com podcast, Players Court, Features and Boards, The Green Light, and Courtside Culture. Oh, and don't forget to check out our flagship, the Hoopheads podcast, hosted by me, Mike Cleansing, and my co-host, Jason Sunkel, featuring the best minds in the game, from grassroots to the NBA.
Hello and welcome to episode 35 of the Motor City Hoop Show. Just a quick update on our regular host, Vlad Moldovanu, who is still overseas finalizing his basketball basketball academy and other commitments before returning to Michigan to see his family, and hopefully we'll be back for the next episode with Koo from Locked On Pistons. But today, guys, I'm excited to be joined by Keith Black Trudeau, an absolute basketball historian, student of the game, Pistons fan, Pistons historian. And on today's show, Keith is going to take us through a complete history of the Detroit Pistons from the start to the bad boys to the going to work Pistons and everything in between. Before we get started, I want to welcome Keith to Motor City Hoops and thank him for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, so for everyone listening, guys, this is not going to be an episode where we discuss the current Pistons roster, the NBA draft, or Cade Cunningham. Previous episodes with Richard Stamen from Locked On NBA Draft and James Edwards III from The Athletic, and that future episode with Koo will cover that stuff. This is an episode entirely dedicated to the history of the Pistons. I think it'll be informative and fun for you guys, the listeners. This is going to be great for me. I've admitted being a Pistons transplant, and I'm fascinated to learn more about it. And there's nobody better to learn Pistons history than Keith Black Trudeau. So I'm excited. Let's get started. We're going to call this the pre-Bad Boys segment, Keith. Um, I don't know where we want to start. In Fort Wayne in 1941, I know we've talked about this. I, we, we, we can't touch on everything. Let's just start. You know, what's one of the biggest insights you have from this era, this 19? I know it's 40 years, but where, where can you start us off with yeah. this? All right. Well, the, the, the Pistons, uh, and really, uh, by extension, pro basketball, uh, would not exist, at least in the form that we have it today, without uh, Fred Zollner, who I – I think most, most people with a basic understanding of Pistons history would know he was the original uh, founder and owner of the Pistons. Uh, believe it or not, the, the Pistons actually start uh, in 1939. Okay. Uh, yeah, Fred, Fred Zollner. Basically, he, he ran a, uh assembly plant uh, manufacturing Pistons for uh, Ford and GM, among others. And tale as old as time, really. Uh the, the boss liked to, uh, you know, stack his uh, company team with ringers. <laughs> and he, yeah, so he, yeah, he had, uh, and naturally, of course, that's why they were named the Pistons. Uh, as far back as I can go, it's probably 1939 when they started playing. They weren't a part of any league. They were just, you know, essentially a company team. And, but they, he was so good at assembling talent that they were just railroading everybody in Fort Wayne and later on Indiana. So what happened was they had this thing called the World Basketball Tournament uh, in, I think they started in 1939. And basically what this was, uh, without a central, like, major basketball league, this was the, a tournament in Chicago held to essentially uh, determine and promote who the best uh, pro basketball team in the, in the world was. And essentially... The, the Zoller Pistons, uh, his company team ran out of competition and they entered this, uh, I want to say in the early forties, 1939, And yeah, you had basketball teams, uh, coming from all around to compete in this, uh, the, the national basketball league, which was really the only thing close to a, to a pro basketball league. They sent teams here, but you also had like the Harlem Globetrotters won this thing once, uh, the New York Wrens. A lot of the old historical famous teams competed in this. 
So, it, it's, so sorry, Keith, but was it was it legit world or I mean, did they just say world? But it was was it just the yeah, United it, States? Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. I say world in quotes, right? Sure. Uh, okay. Because it's the 1950s, and basketball is very much in its infancy. Yes. And yeah, basketball is I, the NCAA tournament. Uh, I think they held their first tournament in in 1939. So it, it is. That basketball is just just beginning to take off the ground as a sport. Uh, so yeah, it, it was basically Midwest team, Northeast teams. Uh, basketball really hadn't taken hold in the in the South yet. It was just beginning in the uh, on the Pacific in the, on the Pacific Coast. But this was essentially the the big basketball tournament that was recognized as if you won this, you were the best pro team. And as a reward, you got to play a uh, team of college all-stars uh, as an <laughs> exhibition. Okay. So, yeah. So, so anyway, Fred Zoller takes, essentially takes his company team and they didn't win this, but they competed and they competed very well. And, uh, what happens is he goes to the commissioner of the, uh, the national basketball league and asks if they could, uh, schedule uh, some games come to Fort Wayne uh, for some exhibitions so his team can have some more competition. And the, com- uh, and the commissioner's counteroffer was, uh, here, here's the better offer. How about you just join our league? Oh, so, hold on. So these are legit just like factory workers that he's assembling? Uh, basically, however, as I said before, he was stacking them with talent. Okay. Okay. Like, okay. Started out as a company team, but this was very much uh, okay. Fred Zollner's vanity project. Yeah, he had a softball team and a basketball team, like you know most companies in the '30s and '40s. But he he took it very serious. I got you. I got you. Okay, that 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 makes sense. Uh, that, okay. Yeah. So, and as soon as the, uh, the the Pistons got entry into the National Basketball League, I think the first year they finished second, and the second year they had the best record. And then we get to 1944 through 1946. And now, now once the Pistons are a part of an actual uh, basketball league, Zollner has even more reach to go and grab more talent since they're now an actual professional basketball team. So if I asked, uh, really, if I asked any uh, Pistons fan, who, who was the first Hall of Fame backcourt in, in the history of the Pistons as a basketball team? Uh, you, you, Everyone would uh, reply back, it's Isaiah Thomas and uh, Joe Dumars, and we would all be wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah, b- believe it or not, and this is where the dynasty, the, the again in quotes, uh, semi-dynasty really takes off with the uh, Fort Wayne Pistons. Uh, 1944, they were able to pair uh, a pair of guards, uh, Buddy Jeanette and uh, Bobby McDermott, uh, both in the Hall of Fame today. And they were very much... Um, uh, McDermott is a guy that was described as well he had the set shot like everybody else in his era uh, he was pulling from 30 feet out okay. uh, he, yeah he was widely recognized as the, the greatest shooter in the game uh, at, of, during his era because this is a league with no you know the three point line hadn't even been a thought oh, at this point in, for sure. in the mid 40s and, and he is still pulling like as soon as he crossed half court, he was he was he had the green line. But he was also and, the uh, coach, right? Like, cause was he coach of the year and MVP a couple years? I mean, just I'm going off Wikipedia, you know, as I'm looking through this with you. So was he also the coach? 
of the uh, Fort Wayne Pistons, I'm not 100% sure. I don't think – I know he was a coach later on. Okay. I, I don't uh, – Buddy, Buddy Jeanette was a player coach, not with the Pistons, but after he left the Pistons. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, uh, speaking of uh, Buddy Jeanette, um, more of a uh, – I would I would consider him – because we didn't really have the term point guard in the 40s, but he was the very definition of a, of a, a floor general and a point guard uh, – Known for being a tough defender, known for being creative. Both, both Jeanette and uh, McDermott were both uh, colorfully uh, described as playground style players, which really in the 1940s just meant it wasn't like nine passes in a shot. You were creating <laughs> not the not yeah. the not the Hoosiers movie type basketball. Correct. Yeah, and this is obviously with no shot clock. You were, you were looking around <laughs> for three minutes trying to get a trying to get a layup. No, both of these guys were taking. Uh, quick shots. They were creating their own offense. And as a duo, the, the Pistons had them together as a duo uh, three straight years in the National Basketball League. Uh, all three years, they were, had the league's best record. Uh, all three years, they went on to the National the World Basketball Tournament and destroyed it. I think their average margin of victory in, the, in all their championship games was around 20 points. And this, this was during an era where Teams were struggling to score, you know, 40, 50. And the Pistons were hitting 60 or 70 uh, during that era. So that that was, yeah, that, that was really the high point of the of the Fort Wayne Pistons uh, during that era. That, that they, they were just dominating teams. This is fascinating. The, the Fred Zoltner. No, I was just going to say, it's like, it's just fascinating how these things start. Like, like. Fred Zollner and and just this vision or whatever, like you say, and then it just how, like you say, his, however he assembled these teams and these players and I, I don't sorry I, I didn't mean to interrupt like I'm just sitting here at the, on the edge of my chair listening to it so. No, no, you're you're good. Um, yeah, yeah, Fred Zollner again. He I would describe him as somewhat of like a, a Mark Cuban type owner, uh, eccentric. Uh, not a not a very intimidating, but he had a passion. He didn't know a whole lot about basketball, but he did have a, a passion for it. He saw it. He saw professional basketball as the future, uh, something that could compete with with baseball and football. And he never really got to see that through uh, during his time in ownership. But he absolutely uh, helped things along the way, where pro basketball could have died uh, without him. Um, so yeah. The Pistons had those two guards together for three years, and they were the, unquestionably the best team on earth in those three years. Uh, Buddy Jeanette left uh, the Pistons to join the Baltimore Bullets as a player coach and actually led them to the second uh, BAA title, which is really the what's the NBA today. So they're, they're credited, as credited with uh, the second NBA championship banner uh, led by Buddy Jeanette. Um, all right, so... Right, here, here's the problem with the National Basketball League and why it doesn't exist today is they had so much talent and they had the coaches, they had the players, but the problem is, as you alluded to earlier, um, they were all playing in small towns. You had like Sheboygan and you know somewhere in Iowa and Missouri and Minnesota. Th- th- these were not places where you could grow as a professional basketball league. Uh, so, and what happened was that the rival league, the Basketball Association of America, the BAA, started up. 
And it was a club of arena owners with really no no teams, but they, they owned the arenas. And they owned the arenas in places like Boston and New York and Philadelphia and Chicago. And these were places where uh, you had untapped potential. And the city in basketball, which is a city game by nature, it could really grow. So what happened was they actually poached um, the Pistons and the uh, Minneapolis Lakers, uh, who were, well, they were a new team in uh, Minneapolis. They were the Detroit Gems previously, but but the big draw with them was that they had a guy named George Mikan. <laughs> and yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure you know who he is. Uh, uh, and, I, I want to talk to you about George Mikan more on another episode, Keith. Like, I, I, I'm embarrassed. I know who George Mikan is. Like, don't get me wrong, but the Mikan drill obviously is a, you know, renowned around basketball world but i'd like to know more about him as a player but i know that's another episode but right all right so uh the 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 basketball association of america essentially poached the the pistons who were the the dominant franchise even though they weren't the best team anymore the lakers were and they poached the lakers because basically because they had george mikan who was the biggest basketball star fresh out of college um most dominant player on earth at the time. And I think they paid the Pistons, I think $25,000. It's probably about 10 times that much in today's money uh, to leave leagues, to join the uh, BAA. And that was essentially the beginning of the end for the for the National Basketball League. They, they, their, their talent was really the one thing they had to hold on to. And, you know, without the Pistons and the Lakers, uh, they were getting ready to fold. So the very next year after that, they, we had, they call it a merger, but it was really just the BAA absorbing the NBL and, you know, combining acronyms. And all of a sudden you have the NBA in 1949-50. And uh, just a couple of other notables uh, teams that came with uh, the, the merger, the, the Syracuse Nats, who are now the Sixers, and the Tri-City Blackhawks, who are now the Atlanta Hawks. Those Those teams came with. Uh, really, all the NBL teams came with, but most of them folded within a year or two. Because um, of the small are, markets, Keith, is that why? I mean, the, the small markets you talked about—they just yes. couldn't keep up. Well, it, it was the, not just the small markets, but it was the, with the arenas. Okay, like you, you had these, yeah, you had these uh, owners who had a lot of them owned these arenas for uh, as hockey as uh, hockey owners in the NHL, and they needed. Uh, they wanted to fill those extra dates, so they figured, why not? Why don't we just start a basketball league? You know, a hockey. We can just convert the hockey rinks to basketball arenas, and it, it'll work out. Um. So now, at this point, the Pistons are in the uh, NBA, and they took they take part in maybe the weirdest game ever played, uh, but also maybe one of the most significant. Uh, where's the the irony? The two NBL teams. Uh, I want to say uh, November of 1950. Uh, the, the Lakers are the most dominant team on earth at this point. Uh, they are the defending NBA champions. And they were just railroad. They had four Hall of Famers on the team, but it's really just George Mike, and they'd walk the ball on the floor, dump the ball in, and, and he'd either railroad you for a layup or you'd uh, double or triple team, and then he he passed the ball off, and then someone else would get a layup. They they were really an unstoppable collection of talent. But what they didn't have was a whole lot of speed because Mike, and as big as he was, was slow as hell. So <laughs> the the coach of the Pistons came up with this idea: um, let's just bore them to death. 
So, yeah, as, as soon as the ball tips off, yeah, it's basically as soon as the ball tips off, um, uh, one of the piston guards just basically holds the ball for three minutes. So the invention of stall ball. Yep. Yeah, well, this is extreme. Um, yeah, so he holds the ball for like three minutes, and then he, he hands the ball off to someone else. He holds it for three minutes. And, and the fans are booing, and the Pistons don't really care because they're trying to win. And it was a, uh, I think it was like the, the halftime score was like 11 to 10 uh, <laughs> in favor of the Lakers. And, and the sad thing is it actually worked. The, the, the Pistons upset the Lakers oh, in no. that game, uh, <laughs> 19 to 18. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it was actually, it was actually a, I think, a basket with like two or three seconds left. Of, uh, I think it was Larry Faust hit the game winner. But it was basically 46 minutes of people in the stands watching guys holding a basketball, not even dribbling. And the Lakers kind of powerless to do any pressing because they had a lot of big, slow guys. So, yeah. So, But that was basically the genesis for what started the idea of the shot clock. Absolutely. For sure. Because that was that strategy was absolutely killing the pro game because you, there was nothing forcing people to shoot. So if you had a lead at any point uh, late in the game, you could just stall, and no one wants to watch that. So real quick, Keith, not to get away from the Pistons, but you talked about George Mikan as a guy that that changed the game on Twitter when that thing came up. Was this that what you were referring to, or was there more beyond that? Uh, there's more beyond that. Okay. Because yeah, the, okay. Have you ever heard of the, the the foul lane being referred to as a key? Absolutely. Okay. Um, does it look anything like a key? Absolutely uh, not. <laughs> yeah. So here's the thing. The uh, the lane was like half the width of the foul line originally. Sure. I've seen – yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's that's why they used to call it a key. Absolutely. Uh, sure. That, that, that three-second lane was, was very, very tiny. It was narrow and with the round. Was, sure. Yep, and because of George Mikan's ability to, you couldn't move the guy. It oh, was, uh, okay. Very much a precursor to Shaq. So all they could do was change the rules and force him to set up camp uh, further a little away. bit further away from the basket. I got you. Okay. Yeah. Now, now the shot clock. Yes, the, the shot clock is indirectly a result of George Mikan because that was the only way that teams could beat him. Uh, he never. Uh, I don't see he never. He he did lose once uh, in his prime in the playoffs, but really. Uh, the Lakers ran off five championships in, in six years. They were an absolute uh, powerhouse. And the only way to compete with them was to ugly the game up. Sure. So, hey, right. so, so – Go ahead. No, I'm just going to say, like, I, I don't want to, to push us through this too much, but – um, you know, I, again, I know this was 40 years. I'm asking way too much of you to try to pack – you know, to, but to get to the the start of the bad boys in '81, what give us an? But I, I don't want to go too quick. What what's give us another insight here in this span, Keith? Maybe one, one of the 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 things that really interests you. Maybe a, a fact or a stat or, or a story from that time period before we get to the bad boys. Okay, so uh, this story might take a little. Uh, well, I'll, I will try to condense this as much as I can. Um, the, the very first superstar in Pistons history was a guy named George Yardley. Okay. And and George Yardley, uh, he, he's one of the guys that people love to show pictures of to show that, okay, this is a 
this is how the NBA was in the 1950s. This guy looks like he should be doing my taxes. <laughs> but it, it's because he has, yeah, he has like, he looks like he's 45 and he's 25 because he's, you know, he, he's got the baldness. He's, he's skinny. He's kind of sickly looking. Uh, but he was actually a really fluid, like, uh, six, five, uh, 180, 190 pounds, small forward, a uh, good fluid athlete. And I, I know there's a issue that you want to talk about that with the, uh, cause he led the Pistons to the uh, NBA finals in 1955. And yes. There were, yeah. There was a lot of controversy surrounding game seven of that, that it may have been fixed. Uh, now, the, the interesting thing to me isn't necessarily that it, whether it was fixed or not, because basketball, especially with how little players were getting paid back then, uh, there's really no way to tell exactly how much uh, uh, crooked stuff was going on. Uh, the, the interesting thing is Yardley uh, in that game seven, which, by the way, was two very evenly matched teams, the Pistons and Nationals. They had the same. They tied for the best record. Uh that, that t- series went went the full seven. Uh, no team won by more than seven points either way. And the the Pistons uh, went to game seven in Syracuse on the road, and they had a double-digit first quarter lead, and they just slowly whittled it away. And George Arley, who had scored 30, uh, like 31, I think, in game six, yeah, he was on the floor. Game seven, he shot three for 12, scored nine points. But he, he, he was the guy that, that was accusing uh, his own teammates of, like, there was no evidence for it, <laughs> or at least nothing proven. But he, he was bitter to the end that he thought his teammates had thrown that game. When you know, Yardley himself, I think, committed a traveling, uh, traveling violation with, like, 20 seconds left was, in a one-point game. I was going to say, so it, that's so interesting to me. This is why I wanted to bring you on because, again, you know, any here's what I want to say. Anybody can go to Wikipedia and I can read through this stuff. You know, like I can do this, but you can't get the insights we're getting from Keith right now because I can go to Wikipedia and read. Yeah, the closing moments include a palming turnover by Yardley with 18 seconds, but it doesn't say anything about him being the one that was mad that his teammates threw the game. So this is why I wanted to talk to you because I knew you would have those better insights, those intricacies of these stories. All right, but this is actually the the part that no one really thinks about. Um, this is the more interesting part to me about all of this is that without gambling, we may never uh, uh, know George Yardley's name. Uh, there was a guy, all right, flashback a few years. Uh, George, uh, George Yardley was actually the, he was the Pistons first round pick in 1950, uh, but he stayed uh, back a year to play AAU ball. And then he had a naval commitment. So we didn't join the Pistons until 53. In 53, they had number three, uh, the third pick in the draft that year by the Pistons was a guy named Jack Molinas, who played the same position as Yardley, a uh, superstar in college, uh, by most accounts was better than Yardley, uh, was an all-star, hit from right out of the gate from his rookie season, uh, never actually got to play in that all-star game, though, because he was busted in a uh, gambling ring for winning <laughs> on Pistons games. So, yeah. So, and because he got banned from the NBA, in comes George Yardley uh, right behind him. And all of a sudden, George Yardley's getting minutes, he's getting shots. And that's the ultimate irony is 
and I, and I get it because George Early at this point has probably known nothing but gambling in the sport. He must he must have felt like the only honest man in, in basketball by that '55 Finals because he, everyone and look, Molinas was exonerated by by a grand jury. Uh, like there was no evidence that he was throwing games uh, outside of betting on his own team, uh, but. Yeah, with with, with Yardley, I can kind of try to see it from his point of view that the, everybody's crooked except me. Uh, that's why we. That's why I didn't have my championship ring. Uh, but yeah, the the last. If if you want me to finish that Yardley saga for a few minutes, um, yeah, go ahead. So, Absolutely. So the, the Fort Wayne Pistons made it back to the finals the next year. They weren't very good. Uh, they were barely over 500. The Warriors destroyed them in the finals, and that was really their last finals appearance until the bad boys. Uh, so uh, Fred Zollner, after all of his uh, – famously, he, he's, he never really lost money in Fort Wayne, but he wasn't really making it either, and he saw – this is now uh, post-war America, economic boom. Detroit is really the place to be at this point. Uh, the Lions are winning Super Bowls uh, one after the other. Uh, the Red Wings are in the middle of the Gordie Howe era. And he sees this big opportunity for pro basketball. And in 1957, he moves them out from Fort Wayne to Detroit, uh, thereby becoming the Detroit Pistons. And the, the interesting thing is uh, the, the actual first NBA game played in Detroit uh, did not involve the Detroit Pistons. So uh, as, as a... Uh, as in a publicity stunt, uh, they sold uh, the uh, home game from the St. Louis Hawks. So the, the very first game was a doubleheader. Uh, the very first game was the Hawks versus the Knicks <laughs> at, at, to, 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 get the, to get the fans in. So they bought it from the Hawks to come play a doubleheader, the first game of a doubleheader on what would be opening night or the first night of the season? Correct. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> The, the very first NBA game played in Detroit was the Hawks and Knicks, followed by the Pistons hosting the World Champions uh, Celtics. Did they win? No, God, no. They, they, they got they, they got, got destroyed. Bad. Uh, it was Bill Russell and Bob Cousy. Uh, yeah, really yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, but, gosh. Yeah, the Pistons at this point were uh, they were basically Yardley uh, and a bunch of guys. I don't, I don't know Gene Shue was on that team, but. Anyway, the important thing is uh, George Yardley. Uh, the, the Pistons weren't doing very well that first season in Detroit. Uh, they were struggling to get interest. Uh, there were so many other good teams in town, and no one really knew anything. Pro basketball was very new to the area, so no one really had interest, especially because the Pistons weren't very good. So basically, uh, they had this idea where they went to George Yardley, and they said, you know what? Uh, you're, you're averaging like 25, 26 a game right now. Uh, Go for the go for the record. See if you can be the first guy ever to score two thousand points in a season. <sighs> yeah, and it's a, it's a shorter season too. It's like seventy seventy two yeah, games. Sure, so you're talking like twenty seven twenty eight a game. So yeah, so he does it. He goes out and he scores. I think the second half of the season he had he he, he scored over forty like ten times. Uh, he had multiple fifty point games, and he's still the only Detroit Piston ever to do that in one season. Uh, he, he barely gets to the finish line. Uh, he, he gets, I think, exactly 2,001 points uh, on the last bucket of the season. 
And to this day, uh, like his record lasted exactly one year because Bob Pettit broke it the next year, and then Will <laughs> Chamberlain came in three years later and just made a joke of it. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, to this day, uh, George Yardley is the only player in NBA history to have uh, more than 2,000 points in a season and not even get 100 assists. <laughs> Because he was that, yeah, he was gunning that much. Keith, this is, I'm sorry, like, this is fascinating that uh, an organization, a coach, a team just signs off on that. Like, I mean, I don't know, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't be naive or think that that's crazy because I know it's about making money and all that, but it's just, at the point we're at now, I just couldn't, and I guess it does happen to some extent in today's game. But that's just crazy to me to think, you know, that, that they went all in on that. Well, because you're, you're desperate for attention, especially yes. in the NBA. Everyone's considering that a, a very minor league at this point. Uh, basketball is kind of still kind of a minor sport. You're just that was the one thing that was drawing attention is that this this uh, skinny uh, balding guy, which the that was the uh, the irony is that he, he had this nickname Bird. But the Detroit press called him Balding George because he was yeah because he was kind of goofy looking even for like the nineteen yeah nineteen fifties people still thought he looked uh, not not athletic uh, but anyway yeah so and that was really the that that was really it for George Arley in Detroit that one season uh, he was traded shortly thereafter uh, there was some feuding with management I, I know Zollner and him um, didn't get along towards the end. They traded him for a guy named Mr. X. Uh, basically, in my working theory, is that they just they were so embarrassed that they could only get Ed Conlon, who was like a part-time power forward from the Syracuse Nationals. So they basically just waited it out uh, to see if they could stick it on the back, like page nine of the Detroit News Sports section, that it, Mr. X turned out to be Ed Conlon. Wow. Um, yeah, and and from that point on, the the first. I'm I'm going to make it short. Not that I haven't been making it short already, but the the Detroit Pistons, uh, the entire time in Fort Wayne, almost they were a winning team. Uh, their first 13 seasons in Detroit, they did not have a winning record. <laughs> that is, I think we could go through, and, and I do, and I, I I truly feel bad for the listeners, and I know how much work you put into this, Keith, and so I truly feel bad you know, fast forwarding through those years. Cause I'm sure there's plenty of good stories there and I hope you, we can have you back on multiple times, maybe, you know, and yep. get a couple at a time, but I do let's, and that stuff is fascinating. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting over here just in awe of what you're telling us, but can we, can we jump to the bad boys? 1981, Isaiah Thomas. I think we all know kind of the names, but do you have any stories of kind of how that came together um, over the next four or five years um, and some of those things with that with that bad boys as that started to form. Okay, so are you are you talking like the beginning of the Isaiah Thomas, like the very beginning of that? Yeah. Era? So I mean, like, so you know, he gets drafted in 1981, and okay. then just kind of yeah. walk us through how then Vinnie Johnson comes on board, Lambeer, et cetera, et cetera, leading up to you know the championship. Okay, so. Uh, fast forward to, I'm going to start a, maybe a year earlier because that's when uh, Dick Vitale famously ran the Pistons into the ground. And he, uh, yeah, it, it was very, very bad, but we don't, that's fine. We don't have time to cover that. He was uh, fired, essentially. He was essentially the coach GM. Like, like Bill Davidson was making the decisions, but it was 
Dick Vitale's advice. And every movie made just was just terrible. It, it just completely blew up. And it, it culminated in the Pistons trading. It was, it was essentially the, the number one pick, would be the number one pick in the 1980 draft for Bob McAdoo, who was a disgruntled, uh, you know, former superstar because Vitale wanted to win now and he didn't. So uh, Bill Davidson eventually uh, pulled the plug uh, and fired Vitale, hired a guy named Jack McCloskey. And Jack McCloskey, who Pistons fans uh, would know as Trader Jack, uh, because he, I, I think a lot like what Troy Weaver is doing now, I think uh, Jack McCloskey, uh, very active in the trade market, uh, knew exactly uh, the types of players that he wanted, the type of team that he wanted to build, and he went out and did it. Uh, that's not to say that he, his trades were, were all awesome. They weren't. But the one when he hit, I mean, he really hit. He, he understood uh when to hold on to a good thing. He never gave away uh, good assets. Uh, he, he only acquired them. And he basically cleaned house. He traded away uh, Bob Lanier, who was the biggest star in team history at that point, uh, in an attempt to bottom out, even though he didn't even have his own draft pick. And uh, Bob McAdoo, who nobody wanted, <laughs> he tried to trade him, nobody wanted him. So he just let him play out the season and just let him go. And after a painful year and a half, they got back in the draft. Uh, they got the number two pick in 1981. Uh, Isaiah Thomas. And here's the interesting thing. They had two, uh, they had two first round picks. They had the first pick and the, uh, I think it was the 12th pick and the, or excuse me, the second pick and the 12th pick. And the second pick they had, uh, they drafted Isaiah Thomas out of Indiana. And the 12th pick was uh, a guy by the name of Kelly Trapuca. And the, the irony is that neither one of them wanted to play in Detroit. Um, really? Isaiah didn't want to come? Yeah, yeah. Um, fam- famously, he uh, he went into the pre-draft interview with Trader Jack and gave him all of the wrong answers. Oh. Uh, or at least gave him the answers that he knew Jack wouldn't want to hear. Oh, my gosh. And, and, and J- yeah, and... Uh, Jack, I guess, caught on to what he was doing. He said, I, you know what? You can say whatever you want. I'm still going to take you. So he, it was, and it, Thomas was so over the top that Trader Jack could tell. Yes. Uh, and well, not only that, I don't know if he even cared at that point. Sure, sure. When you're that bad and you see a truly special talent like Isaiah Thomas, mind you, he came out after two years at Indiana in 1981. Uh, almost nobody came out of college early back then other than Magic and, and Isaiah. And uh, the the other uh, first rounder that he had was a 12th pick, took a high-scoring uh, small forward out of Notre Dame by the name of Kelly Trapuca, a native New Yorker. And Kelly Trapuca immediately went and bashed the entire city of Detroit, <laughs> just immediately, in an effort to get traded to the Knicks or the Nets. Uh, he said, uh, this is the worst place. I Everyone I know uh, from Notre Dame that lives in Detroit, they don't want to be there. I, I The suburbs, I don't want to live in the suburbs. I want to live in the city, and your city sucks, et cetera, et cetera. And once again, uh, Trader Jack essentially told him, you know what, uh, you can choose not to play professional basketball or you can play for us. And he eventually signed, I think, a day or two before training camp. Wow. Yeah, and, and the ultimate irony uh, is – both of those uh, those draft picks, uh, they they went on. They both of them, both Kelly Trapuca and Isaiah Thomas, made the All Star team their rookie seasons. And to this day, this is the last time that two teammate uh, rookie teammates have gone to the All Star game. That is awesome. That is that's that's great. That's 
that's awesome stuff. Yeah. The um, Isaiah Thomas was really good right away. Uh, Kelly Trapuco, really good right away. Um, the, the irony is they both took rookie of the year votes away from each other. And didn't win it? No, no, Buck Williams from New Jersey wound up winning it. Oh, uh, Kelly Trapuca, yeah, Kelly Trapuca actually got more Rookie of the Year votes than Isaiah Thomas did. Wow. And, and they probably yeah. didn't have like all rookie teams in 81 or yes? No, they did, yeah. They oh, did, yeah. so did they both make first team? I'm I'm almost 100% certain. Sure, sure. First well, team. yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, Kelly Trevuka to this day pretty much holds every single rookie scoring record there is for the Pistons as a franchise. Um, hope, hopefully some of those will go down this year. Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, so, so at this point, Tra- uh, Trader Jack has been on the team, you know, a year and a half. Uh, he's, his first draft pick was Larry Drew, which was not a bust, but he wasn't good enough. Uh, so he, he, that was the pick they got in return for Bob Lanier. Uh, he was long gone. Uh, his second draft was Kelly Trapuga and Isaiah Thomas, which was, yeah, that goes without saying awesome draft. Uh, but at this point, he hasn't made, like, one winning, like, really great trade yet. And he's made, like, eight or nine at this point, and he's just kind of, like, moving deck chairs around the Titanic. And the, the Pistons are still really bad, and all of a sudden, um, within a span of three months, he makes uh, back-to-back trades, and he just absolutely crushes both of them. He trades uh, Greg Kelser, who Dick Vitale took with the fourth overall pick a few years prior, um, traded Greg Kelser to Seattle for a guy named Vinny Johnson. Yep. And yep, and that that was his first real major uh, trade acquisition. And uh, a few months after that, he traded, and I, I to this day I still don't know how. Uh, or what his logic was uh, behind this deal, because uh, on on paper, I I, I don't understand it, but it was essentially Phil Hubbard, uh, a first-round pick, and a a guy named Paul McKeskey, who was kind of the sweetener in in the deal, because he was Polish and Cleveland had like a bigger Polish... uh, He thought he he sold the Cleveland Cavaliers that McKeskey would draw in Polish fans, basically. (laughs) So, yeah, so he... These three guys, there were these two guys in this first rounder to, to the Cleveland Cavaliers for Bill Ambeer. And Bill Ambeer, for some background information, uh, he was a third round pick in his own draft, I think in 79. Uh, he was given the option to try out for the uh, Cleveland. Like he, back, back then, you had so many draft picks. There was like eight, I'd say, nine, I'd say it was like seven rounds or something, right? Yeah, yeah, and what happened was all the draft pick outside of the first round, all the all your being drafted did was get you like a pass to try out for the team. <laughs> and, and and Bill Ambeer did some smart self evaluation. He says, "Look, I'm not good enough for the NBA right now. I'm going to go play in Italy and, and develop myself." And he did, and he oh, made wow, uh, yeah, yeah, and he 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 made a good chunk of money, uh, probably more than he would have made in the NBA for a third round rookie. And he came back the next year, uh, tried out for the Cavs, and made it. But even at the time, he played, but at the, at the time the Pistons traded for Bill Ambeer, mind you, they traded their I, – I, I forget if Phil Hubbard was this, was a starter or not at that point, but in any case, he was a rotation guy. And Paul McKeskey, who was a rotation guy, and a first-round pick for Bill Ambeer, who was averaging at the time they traded for him just under seven points. 
So, so us on Pistons Twitter would kill Troy Weaver for that trade. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I would, I would uh, compare it a little bit to the the Isaiah Stewart thing, where you, the, he's been a, a, the 16th overall pick on a on a traditional center, and sure. everybody's up in arms. You know why? Why, why are we getting this guy? I don't think this guy's skill set was worth where we, we picked him. And lo and behold, not only was Lambier good, uh, by the by the end of his first full season in Detroit, he was an all-star. Okay, so that's – do you think going to Italy – I'm sorry, we're going to get off a little here. Do you think going to Italy helped advance – like how much you know about his game? Like I just kind of wonder was – the European game, the you know the way it is now, where like maybe he went over there and picked up some things and added some elements to his game that he didn't have coming out of college. I I get the impression. Um, I get I get the impression from the way Lambeer uh, tells it in some of his earlier interviews that that's exactly what happened. Is that he he worked on his game, he picked up some things. Uh, I he's quoted as saying it's it's much easier to to play in Italy, at least it was in the early eighties, if you can imagine. Yeah. Um, yeah, as you know, instead of being, you know, just a rotation guy from Notre Dame, you know, he was a star in Italy and he was able to, to develop as a player that way, where it, in, instead of being like the 11th guy on the bench, if he was lucky and not really getting to play. Absolutely. So, yeah. It, so that those were, and again, that's that's a testament to Trader Jack and his perseverance. I mean, he he kept making trades for a year, year and a half. None of them worked. And in a span of he makes back to back trades, and he picks up two guys that are you know core pieces on a championship team. You know, one of them's a, a multiple time All Star. Wow. That that that's really what made uh, Trader Jack great is that he he not because he never failed, but because he kept going. Well, and then. Uh, Say as we move forward, he makes some other great trades and great draft picks as well. Yeah, so Isaiah Thomas's first two years, Kelly, uh, he the, the Pistons have a lot of talent at this point. Isaiah is an All Star two years running. Uh, Kelly Trapuca has made the All Star team. Uh, his second year, Bill Ambeer made the All Star team, and they're still not winning games. So he goes out and he hires again. Uh, a guy that Pistons Twitter today would be up in arms about a guy <laughs> by the name of Chuck Daly in his yeah his early fifties, uh, kind of on the older side. I mean, if you thought people didn't like the Dwayne Casey uh, hiring after the guy was named Coach of the Year, uh, Chuck Daly I think lasted his first head coaching gig in his early fifties was with the Cavs. I don't think he lasted the All Star break. <laughs> I think they fired him before. Yeah, and that was really his. His one foray into being a head, he was that was it. That was it before the I, Pistons. I so I mean, he, as a head coach, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like That's what I mean. As yeah, I mean, he he had been in coaching for a long time. Sure, uh, sure. Especially yeah, in high school, he was he was most well known at that point as being an assistant on the Sixers uh, for for Billy Cunningham with with the the Doc teams and uh, Mose. And I think he was on the '83 Sixers as an assistant too. Wow. Yeah, but um, so he hires Chuck Daly, who he had a long-standing relationship with. They're both from Pennsylvania, um, and Chuck Daly immediately. Uh, and granted, he had talent at his disposal. It, it's not like he, the cupboard was bare, but he he used it. Like he he was able to start taking this talent and forming a team around it. So the Chuck Daly's very first season. Um, 
all three um, of Isaiah, Trefuca, and Lambier, all of them made the All-Star team. Wow. Uh, the, the Pistons that year uh, had the highest offensive rating in the league, uh, higher than the Birds, Celtics, higher than Magic's Lakers, like prime Showtime Lakers. The Pistons had a more efficient offense. What year is this? What year is this? Uh, 1983, 84. And so that was right around – so this would be the highest scoring game the year after that, right? Okay. No, no, no. This is the same season. Same season. The highest scoring game ever. Okay. That was December, I believe, December of 83. Okay. Oh, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. 83, 84 season. Yes. Perfect. Okay. So the starting lineup, by the way, uh, here's the starting lineup. Uh, of the and it's still the most efficient offense in Pistons history to this day. No, no, no. Three championship teams and you know the offensive explosion in the 2010s. No, the the '84 Pistons is still the most efficient offense that the, the franchise has ever had. With a starting lineup of Isaiah Thomas, uh, John Long, Kelly Trapuca, uh Bill Ambeer, and um, oh, why am I drawing a blank? It's the guy that they traded uh, Bob Lanier for. Um, my goodness gracious. Um, hold on. Let me see. Um, John Long? No, no. Uh, John Long was the off guard. It was Kent Benson. Oh, Kent Benson. Yep. Yeah, Kent Benson, who, yeah, who really only but he anybody knows today because uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar punched him out in the middle of the floor. <laughs> Wait, hold on. So I'm looking yeah. at stats on this team. So did John Long come off the bench? No, no, he started. Sorry, you already named that. Yeah, yeah. John Long was a starter. Uh, Vinny Johnson uh, came off the bench. Yep. Okay. Yeah, he, he was getting into, yeah, he was well into his career as being a uh, Pistons killer off the bench. Yeah, yeah. Six man. Uh, the bench in general was really good that season. They, they, uh, gave him a nickname. That was the first Pistons bench with a nickname. They gave him the nickname the A Team, and they did like this poster where they dressed in like military fatigues, uh, with, like the A Team. Um, so yeah, it was uh, in the Pistons won forty nine games that season. Uh, they actually got home court advantage in the first round as a four seed. Uh, and the problem is uh, the the Pistons weren't very good defensively. They had all these. Sc- or they didn't have a lot of good defenders other than Isaiah and Lampier. And they were up against, and it, this is one of the greatest first round series ever. They were up against the Knicks uh, and a guy by the name of Bernard King. Mm-hmm. And the Knicks, yeah, the Pistons had the number one offensive rating that year. The Knicks had the number one defensive rating. And they, what they also had was Bernard King. And the Pistons had no one that could stop Bernard King. So Bernard King averaged uh, just under 43 points a game against the Pistons in that series. <laughs> Shot just under yeah, shot just under sixty percent. Wow, and yeah, and I I know we don't have time to go into the the classic that was Game Five, one of the best playoff games ever played. But it was yeah, the the, the Pistons actually couldn't play in the Silver Dome for that clinching game because it had already sold that day to this uh, the Supercross like motorcycle. Oh my like, gosh! So yeah, where where so they, they play the game? They play the game in Joe Louis Arena. <laughs> uh, which was the Red Wings uh, hockey arena okay. downtown. Yeah, and yeah, they had this, it's this bland looking floor. They didn't even have enough time to put logos on the thing. They, but it was this, yeah, if you watch the game, it's just this great atmosphere. It's the very first time 
uh, since the Pistons moved to Detroit that you had a huge crowd, a great community uh, energy behind this team. And it was just, even though you already, I, even though I already know the result of the game, as many times as I watch it, I still get heartbroken at the end because they, <laughs> they were they were a better team than the Knicks. They really were. The Knicks just had Bernard King, and the Pistons had no answer. They just couldn't stop. Him. No matchup to stop him. Yeah, and yeah, and and, and I want to give a shout out to Isaiah Thomas, um, so I don't forget. He did have that amazing last uh, minute and a half where he scored sixteen points in the last ninety six seconds to to get the Pistons back in it and send it to overtime. And it was just this, one of these seminal moments where you, you see a superstar like becoming a superstar, like in front of your eyes and he's just taking over and he fouls out both of the Knicks guards in the process. And it was just, it, it was the series that both teams honestly deserved to win. And I, I think even though it, it hurt the Pistons to lose that series, it benefited them in the long run. And I'll get to that in a second. Uh, the, the very next year, Isaiah Thomas, I think, coasting on the success of that series, uh, he averaged 21 points and 13.9 assists. Uh, no player has ever done that before since. Wow. Ever. Uh, and what happens in the playoffs, once again, the Pistons have to relocate. Um, for the second straight year, they don't get to play uh, a playoff game in the Silverdome. They booked it out again or what? No, they didn't. They didn't make that mistake this time. This time, uh, the, they had a snow, a freak snowstorm in, I think, April. And the, for whatever reason, they weren't prepared for it. And the, the, the weight of the snow just caved in the silver dome roof. Oh, man. Yeah, it was just a dome. It's not like it's a hard surface. So, yeah, yeah it was, the, the silver dome was obviously not available. So they went through the entire 1985 playoffs again in Joe Louis Arena. Wow. And that was, uh, yeah. And they, they, they got out of the first round. They, they swept New Jersey and they went up against the Celtics and Larry Bird and they, they lost the series. But what you got was that the microwave game. Thank you for listening to part one of episode 35 of the Motor City Hoop Show with Keith Black Trudeau taking us through a journey of the Detroit Pistons history. Thank you for listening to the Motor City Hoops podcast. Catch you on the next one.